Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight's story, An Unqualified Pilot by Rudyard Kipling. Almost any pilot will tell you that his work is much more difficult than you imagine. But the pilots of the Hughley know that they have 100 miles of the most dangerous river on earth. Running through their hands, the Hughley between Calcutta and the Bay of Bengal, and they say nothing. Their services picked and sifted as carefully as the bench of the Supreme Court. For a judge can only hang the wrong man or pass a bad law, but a careless pilot can lose a 10,000-ton ship and crew and cargo in less time than it takes to reverse our engines. There is very little chance of anything getting off again when once she touches in the furious Hughley current, loaded with all the fat silt of the fields of Bengal, where soundings change two feet between tides and new channels make and unmake themselves in one rainy season. Men have fought the Hughley for two hundred years, till now the river owns a huge building with drawing, survey, and telegraph departments devoted to its private service, as well as a body of wardens who are called the port commissioners. They and their officers govern everything that floats from the Hughley Bridge to the last buoy at Pilot's Ridge, 140 miles away, far out in the Bay of Bengal, where the steamers first pick up the pilots from the pilot brig. A Hughley pilot does not kindly bring papers aboard for the passengers or scramble up the ship's side by wet, swaying rope ladders. He arrives in his best clothes, with a native servant or an assistant pilot to wait on him, and he behaves as a man should who can earn two or three thousand pounds a year after twenty years' apprenticeship. He has beautiful rooms in the port office at Calcutta, and generally keeps himself to the society of his own profession. For though the telegraph reports the more important soundings of the river daily, there is much to be learned from brother pilots between each ship. Some million tons of shipping must find their way to and from Calcutta each twelve months. Unless the Hughley were watched as closely as his keeper watches an elephant, there is a fear that it might silt up as it is silted up round the old Dutch and Portuguese ports, twenty and thirty miles behind Calcutta. So the port office sounds and scours and dredges the river, and builds spurs and devices for coaxing currents, and labels all the buoys with their proper letters, and attends to the semaphores and the lights and the drum. Ball and cone storm signals, and the pilots of the Hughley do the rest. But in spite of all care and the very best attention, the Hughley swallows her ship or two every year. Even the coming of wireless telegraphy does not spoil her appetite. When Martin Trevor had waited on the river from his boyhood, when he had risen to be a senior pilot, entitled to bring up to Calcutta the very biggest ships, when he had thought of and talked of nothing but Hughley pilotage all his life to nobody except Hughley pilots, he was exceedingly surprised and indignant 
that his only son should decide to follow his father's profession. Mrs. Trevor died when the boy was a child, and as he grew older, Trevor, in the intervals of his business, noticed that the lad was very often by the riverside. No place, he said, for a nice boy. But as he was often not at home, and as the aunt who looked after Jim naturally could not follow him to his chosen haunts, and as Jim had not the faintest intention of giving up old friends there, nothing but ineffectual growls came of the remark. Later, when Trevor once asked him if he could make anything out of the shipping on the water, Jim replied by reeling off the list of all the house flags in sight at the moorings, together with supplementary information about their tonnage and captains. "'You'll come to a bad end, Jim,' said Trevor. "'Boys of your age haven't any business to waste their time on these things.' "'Oh, Pedro at the sailor's home says, "'You can't begin too early.' "'At what, please? Piloting. "'I'm nearly fourteen now, and I know where most of the shipping in the river is, "'and I know what there was yesterday over the Mayapur bar.' And I've been down to Diamond Harbor, oh, a hundred times already. And I've, you'll go to school, son, and learn what they teach you. And you'll turn out something better than a pilot, said his father, who wanted Jim to enter the subordinate civil service. But he might just as well have told a shovel-nosed porpoise of the river to come ashore and begin life as a hen. Jim held his tongue. He noticed that all the best pilots in the port office did that and devoted his young attention in all his spare time to the river he loved. He had seen the nice young gentleman in the subordinate civil service, and he called them a rude name for clerks. He became as well known as the Bankshaw itself, and the port police let him inspect their launches, and the tugboat captains had always a place for him at their tables, and the mates of the big steam dredgers used to show him how the machinery worked, and there were certain native rowboats which Jim practically owned and he extended his patronage to the railway that runs to Diamond Harbor, forty miles down the river. In the old days, nearly all the East India Company's ships used to discharge at Diamond Harbor, on account of the shoals above. But now ships go straight up to Calcutta, and they have only some moorings for vessels in distress there, and a telegraph service, and a harbor master, who was one of Jim's most intimate friends. He would sit in the office, listening to the soundings of the shoals, as they were reported every day. And attending to the movements of the steamers up and down, Jim felt always he had lost something irretrievable if a boat got in or out of the river without his knowing of it. And when the big liners with their rows of blazing portholes tied up in Diamond Harbor for the night, Jim would row from one ship to the other through the sticky hot air and the buzzing mosquitoes and listen respectfully as the pilots conferred together about the habits of steamers. Once, for a treat, his father took him down clear out to the sandheads and the pilot brig there. And Jim was happily seasick as she tossed and pitched in the bay. The cream of life, though, was coming up in a tug or a police boat from Diamond Harbor to Calcutta, over the James and Mary, those terrible sands christened after a royal ship that they sunk two hundred years before. They are made by two rivers and into the Hughley six miles apart and throw their own silt across the silt of the main stream so that with each turn of the weather and tide the sands shift and change underwater like clouds in the sky. It was here 
The tales sound much worse when they are told in the rush and growl of the muddy waters. That the Countess of Stirling, fifteen hundred tons, touched and capsized in ten minutes, and a two thousand ton steamer in two, and a pilgrim ship in five, and another steamer literally in one instant, holding down her men with the masts and shrouds as she lashed over. When a ship touches on the James and Mary, the river knocks her down and buries her, and the sands quiver all around her and reach out underwater and take new shapes over the corpse. Young Jim would lie up in the bows of the tug and watch the straining buoys kick and choke in the coffee-colored current, while the semaphores and flags signaled from the bank how much water there was in the channel till he learned that men who deal with men can afford to be careless, on the chance of their fellows being like them, but men who deal with things dare not relax for an instant. And that's the very reason, old McEwen said to him once, that the James and Mary is the safest part of the river, and he shoved the big black bandora that draws twenty-five feet through the eastern gap, with a turban of white foam wrapped round her forefoot and her screw beating as steadily as his own heart. If Jim could not get away to the river, there was always the big cool port office, where the soundings were worked out and the maps drawn, or the pilot's room, where he could lie in a long chair and listen quietly to the talk about the Hughley. And there was a library, where if you had money, you could buy charts and books of directions against the time that you would actually have to steam over the places themselves. It was exceedingly hard for Jim to hold the list of kings in his head, and he was more than uncertain as to the end of the verb audio if you followed it far enough down the page. But he could keep the soundings of three channels distinct in his head, and what is more confusing, the changes in the buoys from Garden Reach down to Sauger, as well as the greater part of the Calcutta Telegraph, the only paper he ever read. Unluckily, you cannot peruse about the Hughley without money, even though you are the son of the best-known pilot on the river. And as soon as Trevor understood how his son was spending his time, he cut down his pocket money, of which Jim had a very generous allowance. In his extremity, he took counsel with Pedro. And Pedro was a bad, designing man. He introduced Jim to a man in Mokshitala, an unpleasing place in itself. And the gentleman, who answered to the name of Ertzi talked business in pidgin English to Jim for an hour. Every bit of that business from first to last was flying in the face of every law on the river, but it interested Jim. Suppose you take, can do, Erdzi said at last. Jim considered his chances. A junk, he knew, would draw about eleven feet, and the regular fee for a qualified pilot outward to the sandheads would be two hundred rupees. On the one hand, he was not qualified, so he dared not ask more than half. But on the other hand, he was fully certain of the thrashing of his life from his father for piloting without license, let alone what the port authorities might do to him. So he asked 175 rupees, and Ertzi beat him down to 120. The cargo of his junk was worth anything from 70 to 150,000 rupees, some of which he was getting as enormous freight on the coffins of thirty or forty dead men, whom he was taking to be buried in their native country. Rich men will pay fancy prices for this service, 
and they have a superstition that the iron of steamships is bad for the spiritual health of their dead. Ertzi's junk had crept up from Singapore via Penang and Rangoon to Calcutta, where Ertzi had been staggered by the pilot news. This time he was going out at a reduction with Jim, who, as Pedro kept telling him, was just as good a pilot and a heap cheaper. Jim knew something of the manners of junks, but he was not prepared when he went down that night with his charts. For the confusion of cargo and coolies and coffins and clay cooking places and other things that littered her decks. He had sense enough to haul the rudder up a few feet, for he knew that a junk's rudder goes far below the bottom, and he allowed a foot extra to Ertzi's estimate of the junk's depth. Then they staggered out into midstream very early, and never had the city of his birth looked so beautiful as when he feared he would not come back to see it. Going down Garden Reach, he discovered that the junk would answer to her helm if you put it over far enough, and that she had a fair notion of sailing. He took charge of the tiller by stationing three men on each side of it, and standing a little forward, gathered their pigtails into his hands, three right and three left, as though they had been the yoke lines of a rowboat. Ertzi almost smiled at this. He felt he was good in good care for his money, and took a neat little polished bamboo to keep the men attentive, for he said this was no time to teach the crew English. The more way they could get on the junk, the better she would steer. And as soon as he felt a little confidence in her, Jim ordered the stiff, rustling sails to be hauled up tighter and tighter. He did not know their names, but Erdsey had not banged about the waters of the Malay Archipelago all his life for nothing. He rolled forward with his bamboo and things rose. Early as they were on the river, but they called it kerosene in those days. Ship was ahead of them in tow, and when Jim saw her through the lifted mist, he was thankful. She would draw all of seventeen feet, and if he could steer by her, they would be safe. It is easier to scurry up and down the James and Mary in a police boat that someone else is handling than to cram a hard-mouthed old junk across the same sands alone, with the certainty of a thrashing if you come out alive. Jim glued his eyes to the American and saw that at Fulta she dropped her tug and stood down the river under sail. He all but whooped aloud, for he knew that the number of pilots who preferred to work a ship through the James and Mary was strictly limited. If it isn't father, it's Deersley, said Jim, and Deersley went down yesterday with the Bancora, so it's father. If I'd gone home last night instead of going to Pedro, I'd have met him. He must have got his ship quick, but... Father is a very quick man. And Jim reflected that they kept a piece of knotted rope on the pilot brig that stung like a wasp. But this thought he dismissed, as beneath the dignity of an officiating pilot, who needed only to nod his head to set Ertzi's bamboo to work. As the American came round just before the fault of sands, Jim raked her with his spyglass and saw his father on the poop, an unlighted cigar between his teeth. That cigar, Jim knew, would be smoked on the other side of the James and Mary, and Jim felt so entirely safe and happy that he lit a cigar on his own account. This kind of piloting was child's play. His father could not make a mistake if he tried, and Jim, with those six obedient pigtails in his two hands, had leisure to admire the perfect style in which the American was handled, how she would point her bowsprit 
jeeringly at a hidden bank, as much as to say, Not today, thank you, dear, and bowed down lovingly to a buoy as much as to say, You're a gentleman at any rate, and come round sharp on her heel with a flutter and a rustle, and a slow, steady swing, something like a well-dressed woman staring all round the theatre through opera glasses. It was hard work to keep the junk nearer, though Ertzi said everything that was by any means settable and used his bamboo most generously. When they were nearly under her counter and a little to her left, Jim, hidden behind a sail, would feel warm and happy all over, thinking of the thousand nautical and piloting things that he knew. When they fell more than half a mile behind, he was cold and miserable thinking of all the million things he did not know or was not quite sure of. And so they went down, Jim steering by his father, turn for turn, over the Mayapur bar, with the semaphores on each bank duly signaling the depth of water, through the western gat and round Makopati lumps, and in and out of twenty places, each more exciting than the last. And Jim was jumping for joy when the last of the James and Mary had gone astern, and they were walking through Diamond Harbor. From there to the mouth of the Hughley, things are not so bad. At least that was what Jim thought, and held on till the swell from the Bay of Bengal made the old junk heave and snort, and the river broadened into the inland sea, with islands only a foot or two high scattered about it. The American walked away from the junk as soon as they were beyond category, and the night came on and the river looked very big and desolate. So Jim promptly anchored somewhere in grey water, but the saga light away off towards the east. He had a great respect for the Hughley to the last yard of her, and had no desire whatsoever to find himself on the Gasper Sand or any other little shoal. Ertzi and the crew highly approved of this piece of seamanship. They set no watch, lit no lights, and at once went to sleep. Jim lay down between a red and black lacquer coffin and a little live pig in a basket. As soon as it was light, he began studying his chart of the Hughley mouth and trying to find out where in the river he might be. He decided to be on the safe side and wait for another sailing ship and follow her out. So he made an enormous breakfast of rice and boiled fish, while Ertzi lit firecrackers and burned gilt paper to the joss who had saved them so far. Then they heaved up their rough and tumble anchor and made after a big, fat, iron, foremasted sailing ship heavy as a hay wain. The junk, which was really a very weatherly boat, and might have begun life as a private pirate in Anam forty years before, followed under easy sail, for the foremaster would run no risks. She was an old McEwen's hand. She waddled about like a broody hen, giving each soul wide allowances. All this happened near the outer floating light, some hundred and twenty miles from Calcutta, and apparently in the open sea. Jim knew old McEwen's appetite, and often heard him pride himself on getting his ship to the pilot brig close upon meal hours. So he argued that if the pilot brig was get-edible, and Jim itself had not the ghost of a notion where she would be, McEwen would find her before one o'clock. It was a blazing hot, and McEwen fidgeted the foremaster down to pilot's ridge with what little wind remained, and sure enough there lay the pilot brig, and Jim felt shivers up his back as Ertzi paid him his hundred and twenty rupees and he went overside in the junk's one crazy dinghy. McEwen was leaving the foremaster in a long, slashing hull boat that looked very spruce and pretty, and Jim could see that there was a certain amount of excitement among the pilots on the brig. 
there was his father, too. The ragged boatman gave way in a most ragged fashion, and Jim felt very unwashed and disreputable when he heard the click of McEwen's ears alongside, and McEwen saying, James Trevor, I'll trouble you to lay alongside me. Jim obeyed, and from the corner of one eye, watched McEwen's angry whiskers stand up all round his face, which turned purple. And how is it you break the regulations or the port of Calcutta? Are ye aware of the penalties and imprisonments ye've laid yourself open to? McEwen began. Jim said nothing. There was not very much to say just then, and McEwen roared aloud. Man, ye've personated a Hughley pilot, and that's as much as to say ye've personated me. What did yon heathen give ye for honorarium? Hundred and twenty, said Jim. And by what manner of means did ye get through the James and Mary? Father, was the answer. He went down the same tide, and I, we, steered by him. McEwen whistled and choked. Perhaps it was with anger. You've made a stalking horse of your father there. Jim, laddie, you make an example of you. The boat hooked onto the brig's chains, and McEwen said, The boat hooked onto the brig's chains, and McEwen said, as he set foot on deck before Jim could speak, Yon's an enterprising cub of yours, Trevor. You'd better enter him in the regular business, or one of these fine days he'll be acting as pilot before he's qualified and sinking junks in the fairway. He fetched John Junk down last night. If he've no other designs, I'm thinking I'll take him as my cub. But there's no denying he's a resourceful lad, for all he's an unlicked whelp. That, said Trevor, reaching for Jim's left ear, is something we can remedy, and he led him below. A little knotted rope that they keep for general purposes on the pilot brig did its duty. But when it was all over, Jim was unlicked no longer. He was McEwen's property to be registered under the laws of the Port of Calcutta. And a week later, when the Yalora came along, he bundled over the pilot brig's side with McEwen's enameled leather handbag and a roll of charts and a little bag of his own. And he dropped into the stern sheets of the pilot gig with a very creditable imitation of McEwen's slow, swaying sit-down and hump of the shoulder. Sometimes it's best to ask forgiveness than permission. Even when you know the answer and you know the outcome afterwards. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories like this one to feature on the show. And if you know of any, you can email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me A Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>